Welcome to The Alexander Standard. Today's episode, Antigonus the One-Eyed, Part Two. Welcome to The Alexander Standard, where we rank all the successors of Alexander the Great. From Perdiccas to... Cleopatra the Seventh. My name is Dustin. And I'm Meredith. And how you doing, Meredith? I'm fine. How are you doing? Fantastic. Well, today we're picking up where we left off on Antigonus the One-Eyed. But before we do, we want to give a shout out to another awesome podcast. If you like what we're doing here on the old standard, but you want to listen to someone who moves along a lot more efficiently than we do, then we suggest you check out the show After Alexander. Jumping right into the thick of things, After Alexander starts with the death of Alex himself and the ascension of his half-brother, Philip III Arhidaeus, and takes you through the disillusion of Alexander's empire, but focuses specifically on the Seleucid dynasty, which is personally my favorite dynasty. They're currently discussing the reign of Seleucus II Kalinikos, who held the throne from 246 to 226 BCE. Uh, this is currently the high point of the Seleucid dynasty, so please go check out After Alexander wherever you get your podcast fix. Last time on the Alexander Standard. Antigonus was a big man. A big one-eyed man. From humble beginnings as a rich aristocrat, he rose through the ranks in Alexander's army. From a high position to an even higher position. Now, with Alexander dead, Antigonus's power continued to grow. At the conclusion of the first two wars of the Diadochoi in 316, Antigonus was the biggest man on campus. Not just because he was a big boy, but because he was a big boy with a big chunk of the empire and even bigger designs. Then, suddenly, but predictably, in 315, a new alliance between Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy demanded that Antigonus cede large portions of his conquests to his old allies with the threat of war should he refuse. When last we left off, Antigonus had chosen violence and told his allies to get ready to fight. The Third War of the Diadochoi had just begun. Get what you get, and then hunker down, you hairy dog. Hold it. Now, despite being threatened like this, Antigonus put his money where his mouth was, and he jumped into action. First, he sent a friend of his, and a man that the sources explicitly say was a suck-up, a guy named Aristotomus, they call him the Arc Flatterer, with a thousand talents of gold to Polypericon who was currently holed up in the Peloponnese. You don't remember this? I just forget that he is, there. is still there, like when he just doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. So that wasn't like a, oh my gosh, he's alive. It was like a, oh God, yeah, he's there. But just as a reminder then, you know, after the failed attempt to retake Macedon, which ended up getting Limpios killed, Polypericon had kind of, he kind of limped away down into southern Greece because he had some troops loyal to him down there. But now that the Third War of the Diadochoi has popped up, Antigonus is looking around for allies, and he sees Polypericon sitting there, and he gives him an infusion of cash and tells him to raise the mercenary army and make war on Cassander. Next, he sent his uh, nephew to the Hellespont region to block Cassander and Lysimachus from crossing into Asia Minor. Meanwhile, Antigonus himself invaded Phoenicia and besieged the city of Tyre, 
And this is where things take an interesting turn. While at Tyre, Antigonus heard about what Cassander had been doing in Macedon, specifically that he had executed Olympias and imprisoned both baby Alex and his mom. Roxanne. Da -da is Antigonus going to pretend like he cares? Antigonus demanded that Cassander release baby Alex on the threat of being declared a public enemy should Cassander refuse. Furthermore, Antigonus took this moment to declare himself the lawful regent and commander of the entire empire. That's very interesting considering that last treaty that they drew up amongst themselves when we were in Polypericon's episode, you said they didn't even really take the time to address Alex for because he just didn't really matter. Yeah. So is yeah. this just for Antigonus to try and appear like a good guy? Mm -hmm. Lastly, in an effort to get support from the Greeks, Antigonus decreed that all Greek cities were, quote, free, not subject to foreign garrisons, and autonomous. This is a very common maneuver we're going to see from time and time again in these civil wars. And I want you to really pay attention there as to the sincerity with which this seems to be carried out. So, we see Antigonus making some very aggressive advances, but he suffered from minor defeats and setbacks along the way. For instance, Ptolemy responded by sending around four small armies simultaneously in multiple directions that attacked Antigonus on different fronts. Among these was none other than Seleucus. So he's ran away to Egypt, but now he's being sent back with a crack force. Another setback was uh, one of Antigonus's admirals was defeated in Asia Minor. To top it all off, Polypericon's son, whom we called Shifty Alex in Polly's episode, defected to Cassander. Nevertheless, although there were some ups and downs for Antigonus, the war was going pretty well over the course of 314. The Siege of Tyre takes the rest of the year, but it's eventually successful, after which Antigonus goes north to Asia Minor, leaving Demetrius in command of Phoenicia. Not much more for that year. By 313, Antigonus' offensive sent him directly towards Cassander and Lysimachus in Europe. He started sending more commanders and agents into his enemy's territories to start rebellions in their satrapies. Not all of them successful. Some of them did stir up some trouble. Antigonus then gained control of Caria, marched as far as the Hellespont, but stopped right before crossing into Europe. He did, however, send his fleet to harass Cassander. Moving into 312, we don't have much there either. Antigonus seems to have remained in Asia Minor for most of the year, leaving his son, Demetrius, in command at uh, Phoenicia. Unfortunately for him, Demetrius was severely defeated by Ptolemy in late 312 at the Battle of Gaza. In response to this, Antigonus immediately started moving south to reinforce Phoenicia against Ptolemy's advances, but he soon received word of an even bigger setback. For you see, soon after the Battle of Gaza, early to mid-311, Ptolemy had loaned an army consisting of 1,000 troops to his buddy Seleucus, with which he made a sneak attack and retook Babylon from Antigonus. Up to now, Antigonus had done a good job holding back Cassander and Lysimachus in Greece and Macedon, and had, until recently, held Ptolemy at bay in Egypt. Seleucus' sneak attack on Babylon, however, was a major setback, and indeed, well, this may have been what pushed Antigonus to accept a ceasefire. Thus, by December of 311, the Third War of the Diadochoi came to an end. Antigonus had agreed to a peace treaty with Cassander, Lysimachus, and Ptolemy. This treaty marked a turning point in the history of the Hellenistic world, especially in regard to baby Alex. What I mean by this is that our story is about to change dramatically. Here's the terms according to Diodorus Siculus. 
who is our sole literary source for the treaty. It was provided that Cassander be general of Europe until Alexander, the son of Roxana, should come of age, that Lysimachus should rule Thrace, that Ptolemy rule Egypt, and the cities adjacent thereto in Libya and Arabia, that Antigonus could have first place in all Asia, and that the Greeks be autonomous. However, they did not abide by these agreements, but each of them, putting forward plausible excuses, kept seeking to increase his own power. Now Cassander perceived that Alexander, the son of Roxana, was growing up, and that word was being spread throughout Macedonia by certain men that it was fitting to release the boy from custody and give him his father's kingdom. And, fearing for himself, he instructed Glaucias, who was in command of the guard over the child, to murder Roxana and the king and conceal their bodies, but to disclose to no one else what had been done. When Glaucias had carried out the instructions... Cassander, Lysimachus, and Ptolemy, and Antigonus as well, were relieved of their anticipated danger from the king. For henceforth, there being no longer anyone to inherit the realm, each of these, who had rule over nations or cities, entertained hopes of royal power and held the territory that had been placed under his authority as if it were a kingdom won by the spear. This Summer as the historians Robert Bagnall and Peter DeRoe point out, the significance of this peace treaty was that it had, quote, effectively put the seal upon the partition of Alexander's empire. Now, I take this to mean that it implied a recognition among everyone that there was no more pretense of unity. Alexander's empire was gone. No more satrapies giving nominal recognition or deference to these powerless kings. Now there were independent states fighting each other. For survival and supremacy. I Any guess that's better. Well, is it? That's the question. I don't know. And are there and aren't there some contradictions here? If the kings are dead, then who's fighting for what? True. Right. Brings up the whole legitimacy issue. Yeah, these guys aren't kings. These guys are just strategoi, just generals, commanders, fighting for what? You know, like under whose authority, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like these there's no common goal anymore. Yeah. These are the questions we're going to answer in the next few years. Of the podcast, or do you mean of Antigonus's life? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm you just seeing what? the Ron Burgundy, like, that escalated quickly. That escalated, <laughs> yes. Like, Brick killed a guy. We Where killed a get, kid. <laughs> Where did you get a trident? Um, the only other source of the peace treaty between these guys comes from a letter or letters that were exchanged between the Greek city of Skepsis in Asia Minor and Antigonus, and it refers to, you know, the truce between Cassander and Ptolemy and Lysimachus, but it also talks about how Antigonus wants it to be known that part of this treaty, and this is important, is contingent upon the freedom of the Greeks. That gets emphasized over and over. Want, they want to have this relationship of gratitude. They want to have the Greek cities choose to side with one of them. Not because they have to, not because they're forced to. They want to give this appearance that any Greek cities that are allying with any of them are doing so out of gratitude to these big commanders. That's a much and better approach than Polypericon being like, they might hate me, so I'm going to make them hate me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to give them democracy whether they want it or not. And they, because they use phrases such as, 
you know, the zeal that we have shown in our friendship to you, or we thought it would be right to do this. They don't want to seem like they're making edicts and rules. They want to make it seem like, well, we're trying to be your friend here. And the reason, again, I'm emphasizing that is maybe because Antigonus is going to totally contradict that notion of the freedom of the Greeks pretty soon. Oh, but, no. Yeah, but it's important to know for a plot twist later that there seems to be a common recognition that this peace of the third war of the Diadochoi is contingent upon the Greek cities being free. All right. Okay. Now, there's another reason that Antigonus would have agreed to this, and that's because Seleucus. And we can't go back and read it because it's still, because it's audio and it's still being recorded, but you may recall a minute ago when I was listing the people that he made peace with, I said Cassander, Lysimachus, and Ptolemy. Mm-hmm. Did I so leave he has out? not made peace with Seleucus. That's correct. Uh, and that's the reason that he made this peace. He's going to make truces uh, with the other guys because he wants to go concentrate on, on Seleucus. Okie dokie. Indeed, it seems that having held off the assaults of Cassander and Lysimachus in Europe and Ptolemy in Egypt, Antigonus decided to turn his efforts east to deal with Seleucus's 11th hour recapture of Babylon. This leads us to a short side conflict, kind of like a sequel or a spinoff to the Third Diadoque War, and it's called the Babylonian War, and it lasts briefly from 311 to 309. But don't worry, we're not going to go into a lot of detail on that now because it's not important to us. I can save the details for this for Seleucus's own episode, and let me tell you, it's going to be a doozy of an episode. Suffice to say, Babylonian War was short-lived because Seleucus proved to be that damn good. He's a good, he's a talented commander. He knows how to throw down in the trenches. Exciting. Yeah, like the spirit of Eumenes is alive in him. Both Antigonus and his son attempted to retake Babylon from Seleucus. Which son? Demetrius. And while they both had some early success, neither of them could ultimately defeat Seleucus. Thus, in a surprising move of maturity, around 309, Antigonus was forced to throw in the towel and effectively ceded around half the Eastern Empire to Seleucus, a huge swath of territory. Basically, everything from Mesopotamia and Babylon all the way to India went to Seleucus, which is huge for him. Yeah, I mean, that positions the Seleucid Empire, I imagining. It's going to be the biggest chunk of it, yeah. I mean, even if you looked at the whole Persian or Alexandrian Empire, the part that Seleucus would have got, if you looked at everything total, including Macedon and Egypt, this still would have been around a third of the empire. Hmm. This was huge. This was a huge chunk. So on one hand, it was now Seleucus's problem. True. Ruling this huge landmass had been a big burden and responsibility for Antigonus, and so... Yeah. Yeah, it's like, now you can deal with it. Now he can consolidate like Ptolemy. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, Antigonus's domain was reduced in size, but he still held all the wealthy and the most densely populated areas of the empire. There so you go. Basically, everything of the highest value was his still. The yeah, only thing... everything you would want. Yeah, exactly. Everything worth keeping. The only big thing he really lost was access to them elephants. Who has Lucky Lucky now? He's, well, wherever he is, Lucky's still turning to the left. But who has him? The last we left, Lucky, he has survived Polypericon's attack on Megalopolis, and he was, he's in Macedon turning in circles. Oh, okay. So the Babylonian War is over in 309, surprisingly, brings us straight into 308. Hmm. Uh, Not much information going on for 308. I got one story for you, though. It's going to make you sad. 
dang it. Somebody we haven't heard from in a while briefly pops back up on the scene. Now, a little pop quiz, or just we're going to go over it. Think about this. Who's left? What's the status of the royal family? Who's still alive? Oh, great question. Alex's sister. Yep. Cleopatra. I will tell you this. She's not the only one. There are still a few other ones out there, but she's the last one that we've seen already. The reason I'm bringing her up, it brings back into perspective the fading idea of Alexander's united empire. When all of a sudden, after around 14 years, Cleopatra pops back on the scene. Apparently being one of the last, not the last, but one of the last relatives of Alexander the Great and the descendant of Philip II made Cleopatra a hot commodity. Everybody wanted to marry Cleopatra. According to Diodorus, because of the distinction of her descent, Cassander and Lysimachus, as well as Antigonus and Ptolemy, and in general all the leaders who were most important after Alexander's death, sought her hand. For each of them, hoping that the Macedonians would follow the lead of this marriage, was seeking alliance with the royal house in order to thus gain supreme power for himself. So everybody wants to marry Cleopatra. Makes and sense. she she made her decision. Apparently Cleopatra decided to go to Egypt and marry Ptolemy. Did she really? She really did. Is this the start of all the Cleopatras? We'll find out. Well, well, well. Let me tell you something. Antigonus did not like this. And he decided Cleopatra had to die. Oh, God. So he hired some ladies to kill Cleopatra. Hashtag feminism. Uh, then <laughs> to prevent himself from being blamed, he, quote, punished some of the women involved, according to Diodorus, which I can only assume means that he executed them, but it didn't say that specifically. Well, you could cut a tongue out or but blind again, I'm just, them. It just seems like a lot. I mean, I know this is the most morbid thing I've ever said, but like, it just seems like a lot of trouble when you could just kill them and be rid of them. Mm -hmm. But anyway, regardless, you'll be happy to know, Meredith, that even though he's the reason that Cleopatra died, he gave her a royal funeral. I don't like this. Neither do I. Uh, neither did Cleopatra. Going back to Diodorus. Thus Cleopatra, after having been the prize in a contest among the most eminent leaders, met this fate before her marriage was brought to pass. All right, Meredith, what ended around 311? Cleopatra. No, that's 308. Oh, the third war of the Diodorus. Yeah. yeah, so let's finish things up. Spoiler alert, it's 307. Antigonus is getting old. Yeah. So how about one more war? Okie dokie. We've had three wars of the Diodokoi, so let's round it off to an even four. Okay. Fourth Are they still war. considering themselves Diodokoi, considering that's, they've said this is yep, over? That's the important question that gets solved in this war. Okay. Yeah. And uh, at this point, you may say, Dustin, who cares about the wars of the Diodokoi? They just keep happening over and over. To that, I would say the importance of this first, take two, of this fourth war of the Diodokoi is that it's the final war of the Diodokoi. So this is the big one that lasts from 307 to 301 and brings about the final, sort of, division of Alexander's derelict empire. It's the whole rest of his life. So let's get weird. Let's get it. The terms of the treaty that ended the Third War of the Diodokoi in 311 required that the Greeks be left free and independent. Now, it seems that the requirement of the independence for the Greek cities wasn't really an act of kindness. In the humble opinion of this podcaster, it seems to have acted as kind of a buffer for the rest of the Diodokoi, a way to guarantee that they weren't making any moves against each other. Now, as Diodorus said, 
No one adhered to this, this treaty in spirit, but it seems that Antigonus may have been more guilty than the others of breaking the provision. You see, his son, Demetrius, was very active in Greece, the Aegean Islands, and Asia Minor, which brought him into conflict with Ptolemy. This tension, coupled with Antigonus's execution of Cleopatra, brought things to a head. Thus, in late 308, early 307, Ptolemy and Cassander openly accused Antigonus of placing garrisons in Greek cities, thereby breaking the terms of the peace treaty from 311. This led to the fourth and final war of the Diadochoi from 307 to 301. All sides of the war used the freedom of the Greeks as their rally cry. The first salvos of the war were fought between Ptolemy and Antigonus's son, Demetrius, which we'll cover in their episodes. Demetrius made some stunning successes over the course of 307 and into 306, capturing several Greek cities. Meanwhile, Antigonus continued to consolidate his control over Anatolia and Syria by founding a new capital city near the Orontes River in northern Syria, which he named Antigonea after himself. By around June of 306, Demetrius had heavily defeated Ptolemy in a naval battle, at the island of Salamis near Athens, and then followed this up by quickly ca capturing the island of Cyprus off the coast of modern-day Syria. This was huge. After these incredible, unexpected victories, Antigonus decided to take a shocking, controversial, and unprecedented step. Can you guess what it is, Meredith? He retired. Far from it. <laughs> I'll put it like this. When we have to consider the Kronos category... We might have to do it twice. You see, in July of 306, Antigonus the One-Eyed declared himself king. That's why there's a coin. I knew it. Now, I've got a quote here from Richard Billows that I was just far too lazy to type up. Since the Argiad dynasty had come to an end with the murder of Alexandros IV in 310, or perhaps with that of Heracles in 309. Take that, Umberto. <laughs> the Macedonian Empire had been left not only kingless, but without the possibility of a legitimate successor being found. I don't think Heracles, that was really him. I'm just teasing Umberto. Only two options were open there. Either Macedon and the empire would switch to a non-monarchical form of government, or a new dynasty slash dynasties would claim the kingship. In fact, the position of the great Macedonian dynasts had been that of the kings in all but name, since at least 315, when Alexandros IV was placed in productive custody at Amphipolis by Cassandros. The regency thereafter effectively fell into abeyance, and the great dynasts made war upon each other overtly in their own interests. It was thus obvious that only the second option was a real possibility. It was just a matter of time before one or more of the dynasts took the step of assuming royal status. What remained to be seen was who would assume the royal title first, and how and when. Also how widely he would seek to interpret his claim to kingship, and what the reaction of the other dynasts would be. As Billows points out, the kingdom had already existed without a king for around four years at this point. Aridaeus had died in 315. Maybe Alex died in 310. Even the pretender Heracles died in 309. All this time, the generals had been ruling the empire. According to Billows, in this political vacuum, it was only a matter of time before someone declared themselves king. Cassander couldn't do it because of the bad PR following his murder of, Al of Olympias and baby Alex. Neither Seleucus nor Lysimachus were strong enough. Ptolemy may have been trying to claim the throne by 
trying to marry Cleopatra, but that didn't work out. Antigonus was the wealthiest and the most powerful of the dynasts, so he was really the only real option. According to Plutarch, the Athenians had already started calling Antigonus a king the year before. And then, following this, Demetrius's stunning victory over Ptolemy made it too good of an occasion to pass up. So, here we go. According to Plutarch, the coronation of Antigonus was a whole orchestrated performance. Demetrius sent Aristotomus, that suck-up guy from earlier, to Antigonus's new capital in Syria to announce Demetrius's victory over Ptolemy at Salamis. And reportedly, Aristotomus refused to say anything to anyone as he got off the ship. He walked through the crowd in silence while they were all asking, What happened? What's the news? What happened at the victory? He wouldn't say a word to anybody. Antigonus heard he was coming, but he couldn't wait any longer. And he finally jumped out of his tent and ran straight out to Aristotomus. At this point, Aristotomus reached out his hand and cried out, Hail King Antigonus! We have defeated Ptolemy in a naval battle and we hold Cyprus! That was a new voice. I haven't done one of those before. I liked it. Antigonus was thrilled to hear this, but he was apparently mad at Aristotomus for playing the prank and said he would have to be punished. <laughs> he was like, that's great news. I'm going to kill you now. Oh, of just not immediately saying yeah, yeah. when he got off the boat. Yeah, he's like, maybe this is great news, but I hate you. Okay. <laughs> and so... Antigonus was held for the first time as king. He then ordered that a crown also be sent to Demetrius and named him as his co-king. Aww. Take your son to work day. (laughs) Give your son a job day. Immediately after the news of this spread, all the other generals, Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, even Seleucus, all began to refer to themselves as kings. Now, to going back, that whole setup thing about when Antigonus was given the the, the crown... The point that Plutarch was making is is that that was a whole performance. Antigonus knew about all that. He set the whole thing up. But it's always better to look like someone offers you a crown than to look like someone who's taking the crown. True. But again, it's it's a it's a bold move, Cotton. Let's see how it plays out because I mean, king of what, you know? Exactly. King, king of where? Yeah. King, king of what you have, king of we're going to go get your stuff back yeah. too. You know, and it's like Based on what are you king? Like family thing? You know, what is this the crown of? Yeah. So this is a bold move. And the only reason it really worked out was because it was the writing on the wall and everybody else followed suit. I wonder what would have happened if he had done this and the rest of the the dynasts or the generals had like balked at it and said, no, that's stupid. You're a rebel, you know. Mm-hmm. But hey, we can talk about what and if all day long, but we know what happened. Everybody mm-hmm. called themselves kings, and it was the writing on the wall that Alexander's empire at this moment is dead. No more united Macedonian empire. Gone. Nope. Now, it's separate kingdoms fighting each other. Dun-dun-dun. Okay. Dun-dun-dun. Unfortunately, a bit of bad news for Antigonus that same year. He um, dies. No, he's got a few years left. Oh. But I'll tell you who does die, his youngest son, Philippus. Philip. Yeah. Aww. He dies around the age of 26, 28. Uh, don't have the details. He was probably killed in a battle near the Hellespont where Asia Minor crossed over into Europe. But, nevertheless, we got a war to win. 
So King Antigonus now raises a huge force and attempts a large attack on Egypt. He's trying to finish off Ptolemy after Demetrius' victory earlier that year. He decides on a two-pronged attack. Antigonus is going to take command of the army. Demetrius is going to command the fleet. I will say, Billows points out that the whole thing about Demetrius taking the navy and Antigonus taking the army may be because it was getting hard for Antigonus to move around now. Yeah, you got to get that <laughs> crane out to get lifted yeah. on top of your horse. He needs to get his steps on. Oh, gosh, that poor horse. Um, Ptolemy, however, had time to prepare. And as we know, as we saw with Perdiccas' episode, Egypt's ridiculously easy to defend. As long as you can control the Nile and the Sinai Peninsula, you can hold Egypt. And good for Ptolemy because he had a head start to do all that. He occupied all the forts at the city of Pelusium on the eastern bank of the Nile and all the other uh, fortresses that were kind of leading up to the Nile Delta to the Mediterranean, which meant that he was able to prevent Demetrius from using his navy to land extra troops at the Nile. So he's already blocked one of Antigonus's assaults. Uh, to top it all off, once Antigonus arrived, Ptolemy started offering bribes to Antigonus's soldiers if they, would if they would desert him and join the army in Egypt. Ultimately, although Antigonus was able to inflict some heavy losses on Ptolemy, the failed landing of Demetrius, the uh, inability to cross the Nile, and the desertion of a lot of his troops compelled him to retreat and abandon his conquest of Egypt. That didn't work out. Now we're at 305. Having failed in the Egyptian campaign, Antigonus turns his attention to the Greeks, and specifically against Cassander. Here he has more success. First, Antigonus asks for an alliance from the city of Rhodes, asking them to help in the war against Egypt. The Rhodians refuse to, to fight against Ptolemy. They love Ptolemy. And in response to that, Antigonus then accuses them of being the aggressor and sends his son, Demetrius, to take the city by force. We'll cover this in his episode, but although Demetrius did besiege Rhodes for a year, he was ultimately unsuccessful. Not much more for 305. We can combine the next two years to try to speed this up a little bit. For 304 to 303, we don't hear much from Antigonus. Plutarch says he was getting pretty old at this point. He was having trouble moving around because of his, quote, tremendous girth. Kind of a Henry VIII situation, wouldn't you say? Yes. Uh, as a consequence, Antigonus began to rely more on Demetrius to carry out the war effort, which is why he appears more than his dad uh, in the source material for this time. We do have some evidence of empire building or administrative talent for Antigonus, however. This comes from a single letter detailing plans for the foundation of a new city sometime in 303. But the method that Antigonus used to do this was rather interesting. This wasn't a fresh city that he was founding. Instead, Antigonus engaged in a practice called sinoikismos, which literally refers to houses being put together. Hmm. As the name implies, sinoikismos refers to the combination of smaller villages or towns into a larger community. Kind of like a merger. In this case, we see a sinoikismos being planned on between two particular cities in Asia Minor, Teos and Lebedos. Uh, Sinoikismos could take place for several reasons, such as a population growth, local defensive interests, financial benefits, or administrative reorganization. It needs to be pointed out that this was not at all a new practice, and indeed it was frequently done and had a long history. In fact, many, if not most, of the prominent and famous Greek cities were formed through Sinoikismos, such as Rhodes, 
Athens, and even Sparta. Nevertheless, as the eminent historian Peter Green emphasizes, the meticulous effort required to carry out these municipal mergers suggests a significant degree of commitment to administrative detail for Antigonus. As Green states, the interminable recommendations on ground rents and allocation of houses, civil lawsuits and public services by individuals, the grain reserve fund and the assessing of taxes strongly remind us that he, as Antigonus, like other Hellenistic rulers, was a good deal more than a mere condottiere, the warlord suggested by our literary sources. So, showing some administrative talent here. Moving into 302, Antigonus is still the big boss. Throughout late 303, early 302, Demetrius had continued success in Greece and even managed to reform the old League of Corinth that had oh, previously God. been started by Philip and Alexander. <laughs> well, that answers my next question of do you remember that? Well, it will be no surprise to you, Meredith, that the first order of business by this new League of Corinth was to vote that Demetrius and Antigonus become the new hegemons. This is so stupid. <laughs> well, not, this not them, just... Yeah. You know, the whole idea of, like, the League of Corinth. Is the League of the thing. Leagues of the League. Yeah, you guys want a league? Well, this freaks out Cassander, and he decides to re request peace negotiations with Antigonus. In return, Antigonus demanded nothing less than Cassander's unconditional surrender. He's a, he's a very either-or type of guy. He is, you're right. Well, Cassander refused. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this bold response seems to have galvanized Cassander. And he convinced the rest of the kings to redouble their efforts against Antigonus. You see, they hadn't been coordinating their fight at this point. Now they realized they needed to coordinate their efforts and work together. It was actually a beautiful arrangement, choreographed immaculately. First, Cassander loaned some of his troops to Lysimachus, and then continued his attacks on Demetrius, trying to keep him busy. And while Cassander was occupying Demetrius, Lysimachus made multiple attacks in Asia Minor, capturing several cities. Hearing about this while he was at a festival in his capital in Syria, Antigonus immediately gathered his army and marched out against Lysimachus, chasing him deep into Anatolia. In turn, when, in, when Lysimachus heard that Antigonus was coming, he did some fancy footwork and kept retreating every time Antigonus advanced against him, thereby pulling him deeper and deeper into Anatolia. Meanwhile, Seleucus reappeared out of nowhere and marched an army into Cappadocia, northern Anatolia. Lastly, after Antigonus left Syria, Ptolemy immediately came up from the south with an army, recaptured Phoenicia and most of southern Syria. He kept going, but he heard a rumor that Lysimachus and Seleucus had been defeated, and he decided to go home and fight another day. Nevertheless, even with Ptolemy's retreat, Antigonus was boxed in. And maybe somewhat of a panic, he recalls Demetrius from Greece and tell him to, tells him to come back to Anatolia to bolster his dad's position. But we'll be right back after these messages. Hello again, sports and history enthusiasts. My name is Stringbean Okraman, and today we are at the town of Ipsos in Phrygia. And I have the privilege to speak to yet another of the juggernaut contenders for Alexander's derelict empire. It's the big man himself, Antigonus the One-Eyed. Come on out, Antigonus. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Who said that? I can't see you. I'm over here, Mr. Antigonus. Oh, yeah. Well, how the heck are you, Stringbean? 
Uh, well, I'm doing well. Well, that's good. Now, Mr. Antigonus, considering your intimidating appearance, people are very surprised when they hear you speak. Why do you think that is? Yeah, nobody expects me to have an accent. Uh, yes. Well, now that you've fought some impressive bouts over the last few years, how do you feel about the performance of the forces under your command? We feel real good about the armies. They fought real good. You know, it just feels great to know that I've never lost a battle or a war in my entire life. Hell, I never lost my baby teeth. Keep them right here in my pocket. Um, well, that would contrast with some reports from the end of the Third War with the Diadokoi. There you fought several battles against Seleucus, but were ultimately forced to retreat and give up control of half the Eastern Empire. Well, we don't like to look at things through such a negative lens. We like to think of it, uh, we like to think of it as advancing backwards towards future victory. And the fact of the matter is that we're simply the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. I mean, I'm like a big, mean Santa Claus just crashing my sleigh through your front door. And Seleucus is just a mosquito on a sweaty day. So we're just going to let him pretend to be in charge right now. It's good for his confidence until my boy Demetrius comes in with that old one-two sandal stump. Well, speaking of your son Demetrius, many have criticized what they claim to be misplaced confidence in him. Despite his many victories in Greece, some say his reckless indulgences and partying detract from his merits as a commander. He was, after all, defeated at the Battle of Gaza by Ptolemy, and you even recalled him back to Asia Minor after his unsuccessful siege of Babylon. Look, Demetrius is my golden boy. He has never done anything wrong in his life. He's my special child and my most beloved. I mean, yeah, sometimes he falls under the wicked spell of pretty girls and wine, but that's just because he has the heart and soul of a sensitive warrior poet. Okay, uh, moving on, you've recently come under intense fire in the Fourth War of the Diadokoi by the renewed alliance of Ptolemy, Seleucus, Lysimachus, and Cassander, who now seem to be coordinating their efforts against you. Many are saying that this could be the end of Antigonus the One-Eyed. How do you respond to this? String bean, I'm like a day-old three-bean burrito in a room-temperature orange soda. You can't keep me down. These guys are just fanboys, pretenders to my greatness. They're just a bunch of potato pigeons that I can scatter with a single shout and throw in a single rock. Plus, we got real confidence in Demetrius. He's daddy's special boy, and I have got full trust in him. He will never abandon me on the battlefield or anything like that even if I was surrounded on all sides by my enemies. Well, thank you, Antigonus. Uh, well, folks, these are foreboding words from an imposing man. Join us this week for the winner-takes-all showdown at the pivotal pay-per-view of the century, the Battle of Ipsos, where the grand coalition of Cassander, Seleucus, Lysimachus, and Ptolemy square off against the father-son tag team of Antigonus the One-Eyed and his son, Demetrius, the Besieger of Cities. Hey there, folks. This is Dustin here. Don't forget to get your tickets for the Intelligent Speech Conference coming up on November 4th. 
I'll be there talking about the problems of heirs and successors in the ancient world, and surely that is the most exciting thing you've ever heard this year. So uh, go to intelligentspeechonline.com, use the promo code ALEX to get your tickets today. Again, that is intelligentspeechonline.com, and your promo code is ALEX. Get your tickets today! And we're back. This brings us to 301. Very pivotal year. It starts out pretty calm. Antigonus executes a sophist named Theocritus for making fun of his missing eye. As you do. Yeah. Now, essentially, a sophist is like a college professor, philosophers or scholars that specialized in teaching a particular course. Hmm. Plutarch gives us two versions of the story. According to one, Theocritus just called Antigonus a cyclops, which is a pretty obvious insult. In another version, when Theocritus was in trouble for something, maybe for calling Antigonus a cyclops, some of Antigonus's uh, friends said that Theocritus would be forgiven and receive a full pardon as soon as the king laid eyes on him. What do you think Theocritus <laughs> said to that? He's only got one eye. Right, basically. Yeah, he was like, well, I guess I'm dead then. <laughs> and regardless of which version we want to go with, Antigonus didn't think this was funny at all. Because he executed Theocritus for the joke. Oh, God, I'm having a flashback to the new Sister Wives episode with Cody. It's like, I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing. Christine left me. I, I was laughing then. I caught COVID. I wasn't laughing then. I'm not laughing now. Despite being attacked on all sides, Antigonus concept kept consolidating his empire and said, heck, why not build some more cities in Asia Minor? But when I say build, of course I mean just combined a bunch of other small towns and cities into bigger cities. Three of them are most important. They were uh, pretty significant cities and included modern or what would become the cities of Nicaea, like the Nicene Creed, modern, which is now modern-day Iznik in, in Turkey, the city of Smyrna, uh, modern-day Izmir, and a town called Ilion. Do you recognize that name? No. Ilion is the site of ancient Troy. Now, yes, yes. Yes, yes. So, now, of course, when Antigonus founded all these cities, he named each one of them Antigonea after himself. Mm-hmm. So, again, here we have a first large-scale imitation of the practice of rulers naming cities after themselves, which we saw during the reigns of Philip and Alex. We also saw this Sinoikismos with Teos and Lebedos, you know, a couple of years ago, so this is nothing new. The difference here, however, as... R.M. Arrington points out, Sinoikismos had always been a voluntary practice, but this was changing in the Hellenistic world. Remember um, the big deal that Antigonus made about the the third war of the Diadokoi, the peace treaty? He wrote to this city named Skepsis. Oh, and, like, and was like, I want you to do what makes you happy. Mm-hmm. Freedom. Well, it gets pretty awkward then when he was founding the new site of Troy. One of the cities he was merging into that was Skepsis, and he forced the entire population to move and on this new site. They had to abandon their city and move to his new city. And we know that we're pretty sure that they didn't want to do it because after Antigonus dies, the next king that comes through lets all of them move back home. So this kind of shows how insincere or wishy-washy these Diadokoi could be, and that the slogan of Greek freedom was really just a piece of propaganda. <gasps> Moving on to shake off the boredom, we have a brief but gross reference to the possibility of Demetrius and Antigonus fighting over the same woman. Oh, a lady, no. A lady named Demo. 
I'm assuming Antigonus's wife is dead by now. One would hope, right? Oh, this is that story that you're yeah, like, like, he was either 100% faithful to his wife, or he wasn't. Again, setting the bar very low for what a good husband is. Yeah. You'll be happy to know, Meredith, I'm not taking lessons from the Hellenistic world. Or I'll maybe I am. You. Maybe you'll be the one to tell me. I'll kill you. We still haven't gotten you ice cream yet, so maybe the bar is pretty low. I know. Uh, we don't have a lot of information, but our one source on this, Athenaeus, suggests that Antigonus may have even had a kid with Demo, a mm. boy named Alcyonius, but he doesn't pop up again. In another version of the story, even though Antigonus was in love with Demo, she was also the mistress of his son, Demetrius. And reportedly, this made Antigonus very angry, and his response was to execute one of Demetrius's friends and then torture and execute some of Demo's uh, servants, which, if true, is a bit of a temper tantrum. I was about to say, it's kind of taken the concept of the whipping boy to the extreme. Is that what the whipping boy was? Well, it was the idea that you wouldn't physically harm a royal child, so you got them a best friend, and they became buddies and the one is the whipping boy so when you want to punish the royal child you beat their best friend and hope that the royal child has enough empathy to be sad that you're beating their friend and right when you see the royal child smile we got ourselves a psychopath i was like he got a little joffrey he got a little joffrey yeah Jeez, would you want that job to be the whipping boy yeah mm, i mean you lived a pretty cush life until the other kid misbehaved yeah Phew. Talk about when you want to be a good influence on somebody. Yeah, Edward the Sixth and his whipping boy was Barnaby Fitzpatrick. Well, his name's Barnaby Fitzpatrick. His life already sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot more to say about this Demo lady, but I'm going to stop here and save it for Demetrius's episode. Because suffice to say, she's hilarious and a bit weird, but Demetrius thought she had a nice butt. The last bit of minor news for you in, 30, in 301 before we move on to the big finale is that a famous painter named Apelles did a portrait of Antigonus and skillfully managed to hide Antigonus's missing eye. Our source for this, Pliny oh. the Elder, yeah, our source for this, Pliny the Elder, not the younger, states that this was done through what was called a three-quarter pose, which I assume referred to three quarters of the face being visible. Uh, wherein the missing body part just looked like it was left out of frame. I know this sounds obvious, like Apelles just had painted the good side of Antigonus's face, but I feel like Pliny's point is that the portrait had was done in a way that it didn't look obvious, or like Apelles was trying to hide the bad eye. But instead, he had made the pose mm-hmm. look natural, something like that. So, let's wrap up our story. Last we saw from the previous year in 302... Antigonus was in a bit of a pickle. The other Diadochoi, Lysimachus, Seleucus, Ptolemy, and Cassander, were all allied against him, and now they were cooperating and coordinating their efforts. Antigonus was boxed in by Lysimachus and Seleucus in, western, in west central Anatolia, and he was even cut off from Syria by Ptolemy. Faced with this situation, Antigonus recalled Demetrius from Greece. And indeed, Demetrius made a quick truce with Cassander and ran to Asia Minor to reinforce his dad's troops. So, let's see if Meredith can pick up on this. So, to best describe Antigonus's predicament, we can quote the movie, where Bro- Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Damn, we're in a tight spot. Yep, Antigonus was in a tight spot indeed. 
Even so, he continued to exhibit his characteristic optimism and stated that this grand alliance arrayed against him was nothing more than a flock of birds that he could scatter with a single stone and a single shout. All of this comes to head at the Battle of Ipsos in the Anatolian region of Phrygia, again the west-central area, near the modern-day small town of Sayerbag in Turkey. In one of history's great ironies, for such an important point in history, we have very few sources on the battle. We only have a few fragments from our old buddy Diodorus Siculus, upon whom we have often relied. The best surviving account of the battle comes to us from Plutarch and his life of Dentigonus' son, Demetrius. I mention all this because even though Plutarch does a good job, we don't have a lot of background on how the specific battle came came about. Up to now, Antigonus is boxed up in Phrygia and he called for reinforcements, but we don't know about any preliminary maneuvering or how Lysimachus linked up with Seleucus, etc. We just have to fast forward to Plutarch's description of how the actual battle went down. Well, according to Pluty, Antigonus and Demetrius fielded an army of 65,000 infantry, 10,000 cavalry, and 75 elephants. Against them, Lysimachus and Seleucus brought a combined force of 64,000 infantry, around 10,500 cavalry, and 400 elephants, as well as 20 chariots. Just the chariots? They didn't have any horses or drivers? Just the chariots. Okay. Yeah. Maybe they'll hook up some cows to it. Who knows? <laughs> I think a lot of the variety in this army is thanks to Seleucus, because he's really good at tapping into Persian tactics. Plus, he controls the elephants now. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said. I would think by now, we saw in Polly Paracon's episode, they know how to handle elephants. True, but not so, 400 of them. N- y- yeah. Yeah. It's a numbers thing, not a shock and awe thing anymore. Yeah. So, when the forces were drawn up against each other, however, Plutarch says that Antigonus's demeanor changed. Whereas he's usually optimistic and cheerful... Now he looked afraid. Like a scared, fat old man whose horse is saying, please get off me. More like he seemed to kind of be resigned to the fact that he might. Mm. He became, quote, thoughtful and silent and then formally declared to the army. I done f***ed up. That Demetrius was going to be the successor. Mm -hmm. But Mm. what really surprised everyone was what he did next. Reportedly, Antigonus then had secret meetings and did not let anybody else inside. And the reason this was odd was because Antigonus had always been the kind of person who gave his orders openly in front of the army. Then they had some bad omens. Demetrius had a bad dream uh, where Antig- where Alexander had abandoned them and b- favored Lysimachus and Seleucus instead. In the dream, Alex appeared and asked Demetrius what his watchword, I got like a slogan or a password for sending orders, was going to be in the battle. And Demetrius said the watchword is Zeus and victory. Then Alex reportedly said something like, okay, well, I'm going to go join the other side then. Maybe they will have a place for me. Like Alex was jealous that the watchword wasn't his name. Oh, okay. Ah, petty yeah. even in death. Now see that, yeah, and that's the thing. That, that makes me believe in the supernatural, Meredith, because mm-hmm. I can see that happening. That happened, yeah. I don't need other proof of ghosts. That that was real. Then Antigonus, the next day, tripped and fell on the ground and barely busted up his face pretty bad. In response, he stood up, 
held his hands out and prayed to the gods that they give him either victory or a painless death. As for the battle itself, it starts out very well, but it takes a turn for the worse. Demetrius took charge of the cavalry, because Antigonus can't get on a horse, while Antigonus commanded the phalanx. Demetrius started out by smashing the other side's cavalry. According to Plutarch, he fought brilliantly and routed his enemy, but by pursuing them too fiercely and eagerly, he threw away the victory. You see, he had gone out too far from his own lines and had gotten cut off by the enemy's elephant. In doing so, he had left his infantry's flank exposed. On the other side, however, Seleucus noticed this weakness, and then he started circling Antigonus's infantry with his cavalry, causing many to retreat out of fear, which allowed Seleucus to make a charge and rout the rest of the infantry. During all this, even when it became apparent that the infantry was shattering, Antigonus remained calm to the end. To quote Plutarch, As throngs of his enemies bore down upon him, one of his followers said, They're coming for you, O king! Antigonus replied, Well, who else would they be aiming at? But Demetrius will come to my aid. This was his hope to the last, and to the last he kept watching eagerly for his son. Then a whole cloud of javelins were let fly at him, and he fell. The rest of his friends and attendants abandoned him, and only one remained by his dead body. So that's sad. That is so sad. One source does say that Antigonus's body was eventually recovered and given a royal burial. And thus Antigonus was defeated alongside Demetrius by the combined armies of Seleucus and Lysimachus, and apparently one of Cassander's guys, at the Battle of Ipsos. At the ripe old age of 81, some sources say 86, Antigonus Monophthalmos, that is the one-eyed, was killed in battle. And as we'll see in later episodes, his empire was immediately carved up by his enemies, especially Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Lastly, while dead, Antigonus had one of the most lasting influences on the Hellenistic world. First, his son Demetrius survived the battle and goes on to have a very interesting career, as we will see in his episode. Second, and because of Demetrius' survival, Antigonus' family will eventually become the final ruling family in Macedon, the Antigonid dynasty, who will be the subject of our second season. Okay. Um, I got two last quotes for you, just, just general reflections by the sources on Antigonus. According to Diodorus, King Antigonus, who rose from private station to high power and became mightiest king of his day, was not content with the gifts of fortune, but undertook to bring unjustly into his own hands the kingdoms of all the others. Thus he lost his own dominion and was deprived of life as well. Polyinus, another Greek historian, states that Antigonus, when in force superior to the enemy, always engaged cautiously, but if inferior, attacked with all possible vigor, because he considered a glorious death preferable to an ignominious life. All right, you ready to rate? Let's do it. One, two, three. Aristea, battle prowess. I think he did, Meredith. Ah, uh, good until it wasn't. As it often is. Yeah, well, no, I, I feel like we encounter that a lot. You have these people that have these long storied careers of success. And then how do you address the fact that at the end they lost, 
And then I always find it tricky too when there is a legacy still to come from them. Like they lost in that moment, but it wasn't the end in his case for his dynasty. Alexander the Great and Philip II, they both got 18. Antipater got a 13. Eumenes got a 16. Those are our highest people. I mean, he's definitely undeniably better than a polyparacon and a perdicus and a yeah. Hmm. I would say an eight for me, because he had to do pretty spectacularly throughout his life to get to this grand defeat, if you get my meaning. Yeah, yeah, I get your meaning. As I said from the start of the podcast, and I, I repeated it several times, I really think that the best generals are revealed in cases of adversity. Sometimes the merit of a commander of a general is revealed when they lose because it's not always your fault if you lose. I mean, sometimes it's just bad decisions, but sometimes you can do everything right and still not win. So, take into consideration when he's left behind in Anatolia with low resources and he still manages to win over and over. He's outnumbered by Eumenes and the Experticans at first. And yet he still smashes them again and again. But as I'm saying all that, he did get caught a few times with his pants down by Yemenis. So I think I might have to, because this is our show and we can do whatever we want, I ought to give him a seven, but because it's our show, I'm going to do an eight. Okay. So that makes him same as Yemenis. Eutychia. Success. I think he's great. I, yeah, no, very, very successful. Um, I, mm-hmm. That's why I made a point to go over all those things with the Sinoikismos, because it shows that this is a guy who is genuinely attentive to the fact that you can't just conquer an empire. you got to consolidate, and you have to administer it. Ready for it? Here it comes. You ready? Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. I'm going to okay. do it. Okay, okay. <gasps> I can't find a thing he did wrong. Even like him forcing Skepsis to move. This mm-hmm. is the, the thing about Eutychia, to me, it's never been like a moral question. Now, that, was a, that was a dirty move on his part, but it was a good move. Mm-hmm. And it seems that he did a good job of running his empire. Because he seems to be the, the first one that we've seen so far who had the time, but also the inclination to say, I need to do political things and economic things. Ten. Okay, I'll go nine, because I don't believe in perfect scores. All right, I understand. (laughs) Uh, That would bring us to Image, right? Akon. Image! Well, I know you got some stuff for me, but just before we do, I'll I'll just kind of go over the fact that we have a lot of uh, generous descriptions of Antigonus that survive in the sources. We know he's a big boy, and he was a tall boy, Mm-hmm. We know he was a baked bean. We know he was... I think this is already out of style. No one says thick with the two C's anymore. But nevertheless, there it is. And furthermore, we know there were statues of Antigonus at Skepsis, Rhodes, Athens, Olympia, Delos, Delphi, and perhaps even the island of Samos. We have recorded paintings of Antigonus by Apelles, and Protogenes, and according to Billows, there is a possible depiction of Antigonus on the Alexander sarcophagus from Sidon in Phoenicia. 
the ruler of Sidon in 314-301 was, oh my god, here's a name, Abdalonimus, a client or a vassal king under Antigonus. On the sarcophagus, there's a horseman in armor set to the right and apart from the depictions of Alexander and Hephaestion, who were shown, that is, Alexander and Hephaestion are shown fighting without armor. And that's possibly because they were being portrayed as the heroized dead or the heroic dead. If so, the horsemen in the armor couldn't be Perdiccas, Parmenion, or Croteros because they would have been dead by 320 when this, when this sarcophagus was created. According to Billows, the horseman has a mature face, prominent cheekbones and chin, the nose fairly long and thin, and the cheeks are slightly hollow, suggesting that a portrait of an individual, like the details are too striking just to be generalized. Finally, Billow says, the head of the one on the right is depicted in a strict profile, even turned in a little bit to be depicted in profile, thus hiding the unsightly scar of a possible missing eye. So they think this is Antigonus, yeah. Yeah, but so you're saying all those things you just described, those are lost, though. The statues and the paintings? Yeah. Yeah, those are gone. Okay. But the that sarcophagus I'm talking about, we still have that. Oh, that's, is that what that is? That's what that is. Okay. We'll post that picture online, obviously. But My apologies. The cover well, let's of, add that to the... Th- yeah, that's the cover of Billows' book. But yeah, that's the Alexander sarcophagus. Okay. Yeah. All right. Meredith's got one for me. Okay. Yeah, see... Looking at this coin, so first of all, yeah, definitely on the on the inverse of it, yeah, you can see on the inverse of the coin you have Antigono Basileu, so King Antigonus. That's got to be Zeus sitting there with the bird on his arm. I mean, it's very much like the coins we had for Philip, Alexander, yeah. Alexander IV, Philip Arhideos. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, no the, the way, the, the style of it is straight, very straightforward. What I'm noticing, though, is... When you look at his portrait there, I really do feel like they're might they're trying to make a point here, because you look at his eyebrow, just is like his his forehead is just very thick, like he's a big boy, like this is not the pretty boy that Alexander was, you know. See, it's so funny you say that because I look at this side profile and I see nothing really distinguishing from any of the other ones before. Yeah. Maybe no. if I had them all side by side. Definitely, yeah. No, that's that's absolutely true. At the end of the day, they have to fit into this like, uh, you know, this paradigm or whatever. But like, just from the ones that I've seen, I feel like his face is intentionally being made to just look bigger. Like he's a big boy. Mm-hmm. Seems like he's got a lot of hair too. All right, let's look at the other one. Okay, now that is what is that, Meredith? That is the actor who plays him in the Alexander the Great movie. Really? Yeah. I thought he'd be bigger. I was about to say, when I found him, I was excited, but he doesn't really seem to be living up to the image of what you say he was. And this is a unique situation where we have a lot of contemporary descriptions of him for us to be like, that actor doesn't really match. Whereas with Perdiccas and Polyparacom, we're like, this looks great. But we had nothing to base that on. Do you know who that guy is, Meredith? No. That is Ian Beatty, best known for playing Antigonus in the movie Alexander and Sir Marin Trent in Game of Thrones. Well, I don't remember who that character is in Game of Thrones, so. Neither oh, do oh, I. Oh, 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 I see it now. Oh, God. You know oh, who should have you know played him? Who? 
who is also from Game of Thrones and also in the Alexander movie, the guy that played mm-hmm. the Hound. Yeah. Because he was in the Alexander movie, wasn't he? Yes, he was. I was tr- that's what I yeah. was doing. That's what I was looking Sh- up. I was like, I thought he was in there. Should have just flip-flopped that. Flip-flopped that. Flip-flopped that casting. What's the name yeah. of that guy? Oh, Marin Trent was a punk. Was he? Yeah. Okay, but what do you think? Uh, Seven. Just so everyone knows, if there's a shift in the audio, it's because Audacity timed out on Meredith. Oh, hello. Hi. So I gave him seven for... Okay. Uh, what do you want to give him? Yeah, that's fine. Seven's good? All right, so fourth would be Mania. Craziness. I don't think he's that crazy. Well, he did do the thing where he throws temper tantrums and murders people. The guy who called him a cyclops... And then he supposedly got mad and killed his son's best friend because they were jealous over the same girl. Ooh, I'd give him a two. Yeah, I'd give him a two. Mm-hmm. So that's four. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kronos. All right, now I can help. <laughs> All right, I would say we should give him points starting from 315 when he declared himself to be a regent. Okay. Does that sound good to you? Yeah. You're so generous, Meredith. All right, so 14 years times 1.54. 21.56. That's a big score. Oh, so he beat he beat Alex. But we cap it at 20. That's right. So That's a solid 20. Yeah. He got 20 for Kronos. Finally, catastrophe. And no, getting killed in battle means he does not get that extra point. Right. All right, so we'll be given for Eutychia. Okay, Mary, Mary, it's gonna, she's going to go get the notes. She left that in the living room, and she has to come back with the notes so she can add things up. It really isn't that funny, but I hope with doing some whispering that I can, you know, create some some uh, dramatic effect, and hopefully that that's funny. It's kind of like the Johnny Carson thing where I'm laughing at something for not being funny, thereby circumventing any sort of, you know, scrutiny on my part. I'm wondering what's taking her so damn long. I'm sitting watching here, and she's just writing stuff on a piece of paper. She should have been writing it on the piece of paper the whole time. Then she wouldn't have had to stop and write things on a piece of paper. She could have walked over here and come back. I think she's coming back now. She should be coming around the corner. I wonder when she gets I have to stop whispering now. You're going to have a lot of fun editing all that. I am looking forward to yeah. it. All right. You know what I find funny, Meredith? You wrote down all those numbers, mm-hmm. but you didn't add them up. Yeah, that's you've got the calculator. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. 16 for Aristea, 19 for Eutychia, 14 for Akon, 4 points for Mania, and then 20 points for Kronos gives him a total of 73. Oh! That puts him up there around Philip and Alex. Yep, we're not going to make you go back <laughs> and check that spreadsheet just to come back. No more steps. Yeah, that's it. 73 points. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay, well, that was awesome, Meredith. Do you have some parting words about social media and crap? And if you enjoyed our show, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook at the Alexander Standard Podcast, Instagram at Alexander Standard Pod, X, formerly Twitter, at Alexander Standard Pod, Blue Sky, at Alex Standard Pod, 
And then you can always email us at alexanderstandardpod at gmail.com. Does he get the Alexander Standard? Oh, God, I forgot again. Oh, Meredith, would you stop someone in the street and tell them about old Antigonus? Indeed. Well, let's give him the Alexander Standard. Okay. Okay. So he gets the standard. Um, <laughs> well, m- much like his death, it, it, that, that just ended, you know, anticlimactically. Um, oh, yeah. Didn't expect it, but it happened. Mm-hmm, yeah. Polly Pearcon, still here, still kicking. Oh, I was dead, but I'm not. No one knows when Polly Pearcon dies because nobody records it, which means I'm still alive today. I came here today with a brief message because I'm noticing a lot of people are listening to the Alexander Standard, but they're not leaving comments. So I'm here today to tell you, go down there, leave that five-star comment. Tell us what you think, because if you don't, well, um, yeah, Pony Pearcon might have to show up to dinner, yeah, and ask you about your hopes and dreams, and eat all your food, and then I'm not leaving, no, I am not. So go down, and leave a comment on the Alexander Standard, yeah! Join us for our next episode, it's Cassander. Woo! That's right. Dead bodies everywhere, that's all I'm going to say. Bye, everybody! And this has been The Alexander Standard. Say bye, Meredith. Bye. Well. Alright, let's go get you some ice cream about that. Maybe. Maybe.